Hello, and welcome to Spectology, the science fiction book club podcast. I'm your host, Adrian. And I'm Matt. Today, we have a special guest with us, Tobias S. Buckel. Um, he's a Caribbean science fiction writer, uh, mostly science fiction, not any fantasy in there, right? From what I, from what of your stuff I've read? Uh, some fantasy, but it's been heavily science fiction up till now. Okay, cool. Um, Matt, Matt looked pained at that question. <laughs> <laughs> already judging my interview skills <laughs> no oh it's good it's good i'm uh i'm really excited to get a chance to talk to um tobias and uh i um i started i i actually learned about uh, your work from adrian pretty recently and i started reading crystal rain um i read one of your short stories and i started reading crystal rain and i'm like loving it but it's so oh, good. Cool. I so love much. it. <laughs> so it's very exciting for me. Yeah, I found awesome. Crystal Rain a couple of years ago when I was like asking people for science fiction with like, uh, I think like Native American themes or something because there's the Aztec portion of it. Someone recommended it to me and I, I really enjoyed it. I really breezed through it. Um, I'll admit I haven't read any of your other books, so I'd love to, you know, talk a little bit about those. I know you have, have a sure. bunch of different kind of kinds of fiction. And then the other thing, you know, so we just read, um, the Binti novels by Nanetti Okrafor, mm -hmm. and we were talking a lot in our pre-read episode about, um, Afrofuturism generally. And so part of what mm -hmm. we wanted to talk about too, specifically, um, Caribbean futurism, Caribbean science fiction, kind of like how the like Afro-Caribbean and like other types of Caribbean like intersect there and just, you know, uh, you know, have someone on who knows about this stuff, like with personal experience, instead of just like us reading about it on Wikipedia and articles and stuff <laughs> like that. Sure. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, 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 there's a lot of sort of in things that I'd love to learn about the kind of how you think about the genre or if genre is even a good word for it. Um, how mm -hmm. you think about some of the tropes that you play with, um, that are maybe more specific to your background that stuff is really, really interesting and I don't know anything about it. And so I, I sure. really want to learn about it. <laughs> yeah. And I, so I think, you know, my, my first question, cause I'm, I'm always curious about the way people like come to science fiction is to, you know, when you first encountered and started reading science fiction and, um, kind of like what it meant to you as like a kid in the Caribbean in particular. You know, I, I came to it purely by accident. I, my biological father, I was on his boat and you know, a lot of boats have a small little library on them, and we didn't really have great access to libraries where I was growing up. It was a, a much, there is a Grenadian library system, I should say. I'm not going to say there isn't, but when I was growing up in the 80s, it didn't have uh, nearly the, you know, the sort of support of, say, the library that I have, you know, my kids have access to out here in the nearby cities uh, where I live, even though I live out in a rural area. And um, so what a lot of people did was they, they traded books back and forth, particularly if you lived on boats. And so I just kind of would rate it and look for something that looked interesting and read it as I was a pretty advanced reader from my age. And I stumbled across, uh, I stumbled across um, Arthur C. Clarke's A Childhood's End, um, the novel. Yeah. And up to that point, I'd, I'd read a lot of sort of uh, thrillers. I'd come across some, th you know, I, I was reading these adult books at the age of like somewhere between the ages of eight and nine, eight and 10. And I, you know, I was reading Clive Custler. I was reading like Agatha Christie novels, whatever my mom left lying around. I would just kind of <laughs> s 
sweep up and go, 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 go sneak off and read. And this was the first thing that I kind of chose myself because it had a science fiction looking cover. And I'd been kind of drawn to that kind of stuff as a young, a young kid. We didn't have TV on the boat, mind. So it was all, it was always books. <laughs> yeah, and I, uh, I, I picked up a, a Childhood's End and the ideas in that just kind of blew my mind. It, it, it just so much crazy stuff in there. And I didn't understand half of what I was reading, but there are a lot of things that made a huge impact on me. I mean, to this day, I know that if I'm standing by a beach and all the water goes out, that there's a tsunami coming and I should probably go running, you know, as right. a result of that yeah. book. Yeah. Right. Um, and there's just all the stuff in there that, that uh, you know, made me think about just uh, the universe on such a bigger scale, you know, and what our place is in it. Uh, just things I'd never thought about before. And that, to me, was uh, kind of an inflection moment. You know, there's no, no going back from it. It's sort of like, I guess, the Pringles, but you can't eat just one. After reading that book, I just wanted more of whatever that was. And it looked like stuff that had, you know, rockets on the cover had that kind yeah. of stuff in it, maybe. So I just started looking for more books that looked like that and started reading a bunch more science fiction. I, I remember the next book I found in that library was uh, Foundation by Isaac Asimov, oh, yeah. which uh, I actually understood less than Childhood's End, even though it's actually an easier read. But for some reason after that, I just, any time I was at a used bookstore, I'd just start prowling around the science fiction section and looking for books. Um, and the primary thing was actually, you know, people say escapism, but I don't know if it's necessarily escapism. I think of it as uh, reframing. In other mm -hmm. words, it, it gave me a way to look at the world that was so much larger than, you know, we were extremely poor growing up, uh, very food insecure, um, didn't have a lot of resources. And, you know, um, many other people around me were worse off than us. And many, you know, some people were better. Um, but reading it kind of put me in the place of just the human species, the scale, history, um, and gave me a way to think about things that weren't just like on a week by week basis. And that kind of point of view um, helped me get away from where I was. And whether that's escapism or whether that's just healthy reframing, I don't know. But for me, it was really valuable in a very stressful childhood. Yeah, I, I feel that I've I've actually talked about this a little bit in on the podcast, but I'm um I'm from rural Alaska. I grew up in like a not on the water, but in like a cabin without running water, kind of like out in yeah. the woods, Um, you know, cold instead of hot. But, <laughs> you know, poor, poor and rural in a, in a, in a way that I, I kind of get and that I really like the way you put that of, of reframing. It's not just escaping. It's also, you know, because you're not escaping, but you are recognizing like, oh, there is this whole world out there. And for me, at least it was like and I I want a piece of it. <laughs> you yes, know, that's why I yes. moved from like, you know, Homer, Alaska to New York City. <laughs> well, and also it, it, it uh, shows you people going through similar circumstances yeah. and mm. persevering and, and doing great things. And so for some reason, from a very young age, I always had the belief that there was sort of a, a, a greater story that I could have for myself than just the one that maybe was obvious. Mm hmm. Mm. That makes total sense. It's funny that that I I grew up very differently, like just in a city, and uh, you know, and yet I I totally identify with everything you said. Is that weird? I mean, no, it's not. <laughs> like, it's not I think, because I think it's not escapism. It's it's yeah, you right. know, it's reframing. It's it's giving you kind of a, a different story, right? Different ways of thinking about the world and different like contexts for it. 
Yeah. Um, that's so I actually I'm <laughs> I'm going to go off script here for just a second because um, I'm actually <laughs> I'm really curious because like when I read Childhood's End, it was actually at a really similar age. Um, and it was also like one of my first science fiction novels. Um, not the first that was I, Robot, but um. Like I was raised um, very Christian also. And like that book, like really like pushed hard <laughs> against that. And Doesn't I'm it? Oh, yeah. Man. Right. Especially, you know, with the, even, big, the big yeah. reveal in the middle, like blew my little like 10 year old mind. Blew my mind. Exactly. I couldn't, I like didn't even know how to handle it. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm, I'm wondering if, the, if there's, cause we, you know, like we've, we've been talking about Binti, but we also, our last book was, um, the Sparrow by Mary Doria Russell, where we talked a lot about kind of like religion and science fiction. And I know that that's something mm-hmm. that like pops up in your science fiction too. I mean, Crystal Ray yeah. like has like literal gods in it, you know, quote unquote gods, but yeah. <laughs> um, how do you, how do you kind of think about that? Like what, what is the place of religion and science fiction for you and in your writing? Oh, that's so complicated. I can yeah. speak to it for me personally. Um, you know, there's this, uh, it's a very long and complicated history in science fiction, and I'm not nearly the scholar of science fiction that I wish I were. But for me personally, um, like you, I had this uh, amazing experience in that Arthur C. Clarke's A Childhood's End was like one of those first moments of teaching me to reframe and question everything around me. Mm -hmm. Um, it wasn't that like I read it and I became like, you know, non-Christian or anything, but I read it and it was like the idea that everything could be a myth, even if we believed it very strongly was suddenly stuck in there. Right. You know, um, that was my first kind of solid exposure to that. Uh, my, my, my mom is very European. So she came from, uh, you know, and, and a lot of Americans mistake the uh, European uh, religion for being non-religious. They're just very privately religious. <laughs> mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. The rates of religiosity are, are not, as, not as big as they are in the U.S., uh, and there's not nearly the evangelical thing. So it tends to be a quiet, private thing. Um, and that was kind of my mom. And I grew up without any any sort of going to church or anything like that um, until I was eight or nine. And, and she started uh, attending a church that was a little bit more inside of the uh, it, they were um, evangelical missionaries down to the Caribbean, um, which is kind of like my least favorite of all the evangelical strains. Um, and we started going there because she wanted a sense of community, which we'd been missing. Um, and they, they filled that and there were some really good people, some good families that, that were, uh, we were a part of, but, um, I read a childhood's end right around the same time. And it, uh, set me down this, this side quest of basically reading everything I could about myth. I became obsessed with just reading myth. Um, it also, I actually was what got me to read the entire Bible cover to cover, right? Huh, because cool. as a result of reading Arthur C. Clarke, um, I suddenly realized that all the adults around me uh, hadn't read the Bible cover to cover, and they did not engage with it as a text. They just quoted kind like of lines. samples of it, yeah, that had been passed around. Um, and then every time I kind of sat and talked to someone, they were actually really unfamiliar with a lot of sections of it. So I determined that, you know, like if this was such a foundational text, and if as the adults around me kept saying, all the answers are in it. Well, then, like, you know, I should read it just like I read A Childhood's End, just cover to cover, you know. So I, I got a copy and I just plowed through it cover to cover when I was like nine years old, which was just a chore. 
it took quite <laughs> a long time, you know? Uh, yeah. Yeah. There, there are whole sections of numbers that I would like to get my, my time back, but uh, I read the thing <laughs> from cover to cover to kind of familiarize myself with it. Um, and then went off and read everything I could about all the other mythologies that people would let me read. Um, and that actually, that part kind of set me down a path towards being a, uh, agnostic as a grown-up uh, individual, but that was the reading of it from cover to cover, and then just listening to how people quoted it, used it, wielded it in life that convinced me that, you know, um, it, it, you know, there was a huge discrepancy there, um, which set me off down further questioning. But I wouldn't have read the Bible cover to cover ever were it not for reading A Childhood's End. <laughs> that is such an amazing. I love that so much because I think it, it reminds me of. It reminds me of something my dad said a little while ago. Um, I got, uh, in a lot of ways, I got my love of science fiction from my dad because he was he loved it and mm. he would you know give me books and stuff, and uh, and yet you know he he kind of never thought of it as he doesn't he he mostly just reads science fiction doesn't read anything else. Mm -hmm. uh, he reads like very little other books, and he sort of always feels I think kind of like that's equivalent to not reading anything at all like science fiction books don't count somehow oh, for him okay. it's like yeah. he, he grew he grew up with the idea at least that it wasn't real literature or something right. like that and i absolutely love the the idea of of having this of like going to the bible from science fiction <laughs> because it, it's a reminder of the like incredible power that these books have their their um the way that they work, like, I mean, you know, I've heard story, like, I, I've read these accounts of people who, like, get to the Bible from from some, like, literary fiction book. Like, it's uh, like, oh, I, I read, you know, I, I became a Christian because I read Dostoevsky, and it really made me think a lot, you know? Yeah. And it's like, well, this is the same. This is the yeah. same move, you yeah. know? And, it's and, the and same, of, and same of, kind of journey. And of course it is, because there is no difference between science fiction and other <laughs> literature. <laughs> right. Well, and one of the things I loved about science fiction was that it, uh, you know, every time I would encounter something in a book that was really interesting, I would head off on a side quest of getting the nonfiction books to read about the topic that kind of caught my interest. I mean, as a result of reading a lot of Asimov, I was obsessed with, you know, robotics and, and artificial intelligence as a, as a young age and would read anything I could get my hands on about it because it was inherently fascinating to me. Um, as a result of Clark, I read a lot about, you know, space access and stuff like that when I was a kid. And so it just kind of opened up this kind of wild, you know, side area of, of nonfiction reading um, that you just can't buy. I mean, it was a whole education uh, before I was supposed to be educating myself on that stuff, mm -hmm. just because I would go and seek out these these other books, you know, like, uh, okay, I'm going to learn all about rockets. Why not? I will <laughs> learn about physics, you know, I, love I will it. learn all about astronomy. You know, I, I took a uh, college level class with my parents once that just kind of sat in on one about astronomy. And I remember being like, what do you mean you're going to teach us about main sequence stars? Like that's like foundational. I'm supposed to be taking a college level class here. Oh man. You I know, it. it's like I stopped going after a while because they said the kid in the back is annoying. He needs to stop. Oh. Oh. It's, it's, that's great. I also just think it's great that you would take a college class with your parents. That's adorable and awesome. And I, I mean, people, that just sounds awesome. Is you're going to an astronomy class. Can I come? Right. <laughs> 
<laughs> That's really cool. So uh, we asked you to like send us a couple of um, Caribbean sci-fi short stories to read before we talked. And um, so to kind of like intro that, uh, I, I'm curious for you yourself, um, you obviously like write settings that are Caribbean in nature in terms of mm-hmm. the Xeno Wealth um, trilogy or I guess series. Um, but like what else do you think that you bring kind of like from the Caribbean upbringing in particular, like into your science fiction? That's not just like setting, like what kind of themes and stuff do you feel that you pull in? Sure. I mean, the setting is the thing that's really, really obvious to most people, but in terms of like, you know, uh, I just had to think about this for writing a, um, a little uh, brief about how I came to write my stories, Zen and the Art of Starship Maintenance, which on the face of it looks like the least Caribbean science fictional thing I've ever written. Um, it's, uh, you know, it's it's very Ian Banksian uh, mm-hmm. sort of story that, that this year. Lo- love I, that I was story, lo- by the way. Oh, thank you so much. <laughs> um, was very well received this year. But oddly enough, it's the most science, uh, most Caribbean science fictional thing I've, I've written. And, and one mm-hmm. of the ways I explain this is that um, one of the things I'm very interested in is is power and power differentials. And that comes from growing up in a small country of, you know, about 100,000, 150,000 people um, on a small island in the middle of the Atlantic that has been considered to be, you know, due to the Monroe Doctrine, the inherent uh, right of America to kind of politically do with as it pleases, um, but is sort of sitting in the fulcrum um, between, you know, the old world and the new, um, because Europe, you know, has its interests down there. Um, And also during the Cold War, uh, very much on the fulcrum between uh, the U.S. and Russia. Um, you know, there was, I grew up during a, uh, independence movement and a war, um, over that. Uh, so it had a huge impact on me. Um, and so I'm very interested in sort of trying to talk about those power relationships within, within, uh, fictional settings, even if it's not obviously a Caribbean setting. So Zen in the Art of Starship Maintenance came about because I was down in the Caribbean at a, a literary festival. I uh, gave a presentation on Caribbean science fiction, just giving people a lot of the new, you know, people to look out for. And I happened to be uh, down at uh, uh, another presentation, which was uh, by a fellow Grenadian. Um, about the history of labor relations uh, in Grenada for the last couple hundred years. So it starts during the times of slavery um, and is about all the different ways in which, you know, um, our Grenadian ancestors fought back um, as they could within the framework of slavery, using labor slowdowns, uh, taking orders literally, um, all kinds of stuff. And then how they began to uh, organize under the uh, sort of weight of colonialism in pre-independent Grenada, and then leads all the way up to uh, Grenada. And it was done mainly in terms of the uh, female um, resistance uh, hmm. to all, all this all this oppression. So it was a really fascinating book, a very dry, very academic book. I wasn't expecting to be kind of riveted by the idea, but it turns out that the uh, you know labor fights go back a couple hundred years, you know. Um, and I had always been taught in various school and academic settings that it's a recent development, you know, it kind of comes out of nowhere in like the 30s in mm-hmm. you know uh, Europe, Russia, and 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 the U.S. Um, and in the U.S., they basically focus on the 60s as the kind of the big age of you know strikes and whatever. But reading this, it goes it goes all the way back to the beginning, and these practices are are uh, deep, and they have a deep history, and they have a they're a tool set that has been in our 
in our bag of, bag of uh, tools for a long time. And that impressed me and that had a big impact on me. So when I went to write Zen in the Art of Starship Maintenance, it's, it's about someone who is basically a slave. I have this sort of ongoing problematic relationship with robots in science fiction, in which that they're usually a stand-in for slaves. Um, and there are usually a lot of very strange um, power structures in science fiction. I mean, I, we could talk about Star Wars and, and your yeah. kind doesn't come in the bar for a long time. Um, oh, yeah. And... Uh, when I was when I was reading this, uh, when I was listening to her, I just you know uh, kind of sat a lot of that stuff in the back of my brain. And when I started working on the idea of sending the art of starship maintenance about a robot, I wanted to explore those those ancient power structures. And so the whole story, the fulcrum is about a robot trying to figure out how to how to have a labor fight within the realms of uh, sort of Asimovian three laws robotics. And how you use those three laws as a weapon, and not uh, and and fight the sort of subjugation of them, um, and so this is sort of like you know my raised fist to the idea of three laws of robotics, <laughs> and uh, I put it all into the story. So it is it is literally the most Grenadian science fiction story I've ever written, even though there there none of the obvious settings are there for it, um, and and that's how that stuff kind of I tend I tend to things to bubble up. Uh, my friend Karen Lord uh, was once reading a bunch of my short stories and she was laughing because she she emailed me and she said, uh, it's really interesting because all of your stories, even the ones most Americans won't think are Caribbean science fiction are still really very much Caribbean science fiction. And I was like, I know, mm. right? <laughs> <laughs> That's cool. That's not something that ever would have occurred to me. I'm, I'm really interested in hearing that. Um, I, I was interested too in um, the way that you talk about this. It seems like you know, there's, there's, do you think that there are things, what, what, do you, what, what are the things for you that, that, um, that you think people might be missing about the Caribbean science fiction that exists in the world? Like what is, what are some of the stuff that you think it had that, that you've been able to talk about that maybe would otherwise be missed or would otherwise <laughs> not get talked about enough? Um, yeah. Uh, Lisa Agostini wrote a review of my novel Ragamuffin, which is in the Caribbean Review of Books, which gets that novel to an extent which no one who reviewed it in the U.S. got. Um, it uh, made my knees, knees weak when I read it. You know, I sat down because I was like at least one person, you know, and sort of absorbed it on all the levels I was trying to write it. Um, and sometimes for me, and this is just me being wow, 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 poor me. I, I, I'm a, I, I live a very lucky life. I'm, I'm very, very lucky. Um, I sometimes do get, you know, occasionally frustrated that, uh, you know, it's, it's Caribbean academics that, that take my work on that level. And, and, uh, you know, in, in the U S it's like, oh, he's a great adventure writer. It, it, he reads so quickly. <laughs> it's very fun. His Caribbean stuff feels kind of exotic, but you know, it's just kind of a thing you go through. Um, but I love reading papers by Caribbean academics who take apart my work or by someone like Lisa, who really gets what I'm doing on a fundamental level and talks about what she talked about was the, the um, power dynamics within Ragamuffin, which she mm -hmm. got instantly. Um, she's mm -hmm. like, here's a Grenadian writer who's writing about this and who's saying this and who's using this. And this is why this novel is like so inherently Caribbean, not just on the obvious level, but on these really deeper levels, talking about the the characters and questions of empire and colonialism. Mm. Um, and so that is usually where I'm playing in a way that most American readers don't really kind of vibe strongly. 
um, which is, you know, definitely talking about sort of post-colonial power structures, which I'm always playing with um, in, in a lot of things that I write. Um, and so that is something that I'm always, you know, hoping more people will notice when they read, you know, the Zeno Wealth books, and they tend to respond to some of it, the obvious stuff, but they don't tend to, to respond to the, the kind of more interlaced, you know, deeper things I'm trying to do there. Um, and so sometimes I'm kind of like, ah, oh, I wish they would take me more seriously and notice that stuff. And then sometimes I'm like, well, people buy my books and I'm lucky. So poor me. <laughs> so, you know, <laughs> hey, if they're, if they're ripping through the books in a couple hours and they just enjoy the action, uh, you know, I still did my job. And and so I kind of have to, to let that go. Um, and I'm always super grateful that, you know, there's this audience in the Caribbean that, you know, when I go to signings or whatever, they come up to me and they kind of they get it on a different level, you know, that that means a lot to me. So it's cool. And hopefully you're at least like, you know, incepting some of these ideas in the in the, you know, general American audience as well, even if they don't always get it immediately. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's exactly the hope. By the way, can we at some point get links for some of that stuff so we can put maybe the Lisa review that you mentioned? Sure. Or... Absolutely. Just ping yeah. me and I will definitely give you the review. It's a great review. I, I, I was so grateful to her for it. Awesome. Yeah, we'll, we'll link all of this stuff in the show notes for folks. You know, one of the other people uh, who uh, did a really great job of picking up on all those themes was um, Nisi Shaw. Nisi Shaw uh, wrote a review uh, for Hurricane Fever. Um, for the LA Review of Books. And she absolutely picked up on everything um, pretty much that I was trying to do in that book and, and, and got it um, and wrote a review of it that I thought was quite masterful. Awesome. That I, I read it and I was just like, oh, this is the book I read, or I wrote. You know, this is the book I was trying to deliver to people. And she very much kind of uh, heard everything I was, I was trying to say. Um, and that was really cool. That's so great. I, I read it and, uh, you know, someone forwarded it to me and was like, Hey, this is a really nice one, you know, cause I try not to read every single review. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, uh, they forwarded that to me and said, Hey, you should take a look at this, you know? Um, and I'm like, Oh yeah, Nisi, she's awesome. And read it and was like, Oh wow. She got it. That's so cool. <laughs> um, you know, and, uh, you know, did just focus on the James Bond stuff I was kind of playing with, but just, you know, the power dynamics, the the geopolitical sort of post-colonial stuff and really, really, really did a great review that I'm I was really uh, honored that she did. So that that was a lot of fun too to see someone someone get it. Awesome. Um, I'm actually kind of curious. Uh, so both um we talked about this a lot when we were reading Binti is this idea of like um I guess there's kind of like two components of this of like, you know, on the one hand with like Binti, I think there's a lot of like specifically like black and African, like, you know, like building a place for themselves in space. And we talked about this, like, mm -hmm. you know, space is the place, particularly um, in Afrofuturist like fiction and music and, you know, kind of kind of all of this. But um, and I noticed your your story, Toy Plains also like touches on this. It's, you know, these like yeah. Caribbean men and women, like, you know, literally building their own spaceships. Um, but there's also, you know, there's this flip side of this that I noticed, too, which is the sense of um, and this is something that I feel, I think, like very strongly coming from a really rural place, but it's the sense of like people, I think, 
and you talk about this explicitly in Toy Plains, but conflate like rural with primitive, like this idea of like, mm-hmm. oh, you're from this rural area, so you must like not have technology and you must not be as smart, you know. And obviously, like when you talk about Caribbean or African science fiction, there's a racial component to that too. That's very real. But I think there's also just this like like geography <laughs> component to it. Sure. I mean, I think rural areas are not so much uh, quote unquote primitive, which is a, a loaded a loaded uh, word, um, as, uh, under-resourced, um, and featuring wild, um, amounts of, uh, inequality. Mm-hmm. Uh, I currently live in, in a rural area of the U S and in many ways, it reminds me of growing up in the developing world. Um, sometimes uncannily. So, uh, you know, the sort of, uh, wild differences between education that exist out in the rural areas, um, the, uh, really strong sort of, uh, often in parts cultural, um, resistance to, uh, um, you know, academia, there are, uh, you know, there are a lot of, there are a lot, uh, the sort of, uh, economic islands, you know, um, in, in the islands, we have large hotel chains that basically put a hotel in, you can work at for minimum wage, but all the profits go off the island. Right. And here you have large shopping centers or WalMarts where they place a shopping center in the you know community and you can work there for minimum wage, but then all the profits get sucked out to somewhere else. They don't stay in the in the community. Um, so I think these are are kind of universal struggles. Um, and I see them repeating, you know, whether whether it's you know developing world or uh rural, you know, America. So I, I have this sort of, yeah, idea that it's, it's not so much, you know, quote unquote backwards or primitive or whatever. It's sort of just simply, you know, access to resources. Um, and also, uh, um, numbers count. Um, you know, so, uh, one of the things I learned that was super fascinating about the, uh, the world in general is that, you know, the rate of invention multiplies based on density. So just uh, human innovation uh, counts on density because people run into each other and talk and have great ideas. It's why cities, um, not because of any great conspiracy, but because so many people are clustered next to each other, more ideas happen in cities or in places where people are bought in to be dense. It's why universities are basically like miniature cities, even if the university is in a rural area, right? It uses the principles of densification to bring people together to have ideas. And I always find it funny that in a rural environment, you know, people often who've gone to college um, view that as some of the greatest times of their lives, as they were, you know, bound, encountered so many different people, and then they go live in a suburb, and they live a sort of really, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, sort of rubber stamped, you know, simplified life, and they 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 feel like something's missing, and it's like, hey, you know, you, you could move to a city, <laughs> <laughs> right? You know, I don't think college necessarily was college because it was college. I think college was college because you were basically in a miniature high rise with a whole bunch of other human beings and found a tribe yeah. that you could click with and roamed around with them for four years and had a great time. And then you left all that behind to go live in a, you know, suburb, right. um, yeah. you know, or somewhere, somewhere even less dense. I, I think that's the root of a lot of dissatisfaction for some people, um, but they don't even realize it. I um, totally agree with that. 
<laughs> the uh, the toy planes actually came about just because of actual um, anti-technological racism or anti-racism technology. Um, every time India launched a uh, yeah made a launch, a rocket launch in the comments section at BBC or MSNBC or wherever you went, there would always be this explosion of people, not just on the right, mm -hmm. but this explosion of people in the comments section that will immediately have all these things to say about how India was wasting its money and why they shouldn't be trying to launch stuff into outer space. Um, and, you know, some people would say horrible things like, you know, they don't, they can't even get it right. Why are they doing this? They should just hire a Western company. Um, you would hear people saying, you know, they're starving people in India. Why are they wasting their money doing this? You know, to so which they're starving, hey, they're starving people, people in the U S <laughs> yeah, exactly. why are they launching, you know? Um, and, and they're just a host of sort of reactions that you read in the comments section. I found them incredibly offensive and, whenever I would talk to people about, you know, scientific research or programs that were being done in the Caribbean, they were always like, well, wouldn't that money be better spent on giving, you know, directly in food aid? Um, and it's really complicated because that research uh, provides dividends down the line on, you know, better using the land you have. It produces, you know, research that creates patents, which bring in money. Um, those are parts of the economy that lift you out of needing to give direct food aid. Um, mm -hmm. And you should invest in those things. I mean, it's complicated. Trying to figure out where all the money goes at once is complicated, as anyone even who runs a basic household budget knows. You know, just mm -hmm. because you're low on grocery budget money for the month doesn't mean that you take it out of the car payment, <laughs> you know, <laughs> because you need the car to get from A to B. You know, right. so that you can yeah. continue to make money to get, food. you know, like you, you, your balance, your budgets don't, they're not just one big lump sum. And sometimes that's hard for people to understand. Um, and also, there's also just this sort of uh, place in the human experiment of doing something larger, um, that everyone deserves a place at the table, you know, and I... You know, when I first started writing Crystal, when I first started publishing in the science fiction field and when Crystal Rain first came out, I got a lot of email from science fiction fans that said, you know what, you're you're a good writer and really entertaining, but you need to stop with the politically correct bullshit. <laughs> People from the islands are not going to get to outer space. They don't have the technological capacity um, <sighs> and oh, all sorts of other racist stuff. So, uh, you know, I've gotten this steady trickle uh, throughout my lifetime. I think by this point now it's 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 died off quite a bit. Um, because people have kind of either given up on me or this is people now know the brand of Tobias Bakel is he's a Caribbean writer. He's kind of going to stick Caribbean people in, <laughs> in, in his stuff. Yeah, right. But at first people like really did their best to, to get out there from science fiction and set me right and explain what kind of science fiction I should write. Um, and it, and some of the letters they wrote were just uh, unfortunately racist. I, I say unfortunately. Unfortunately for me, um, they were doing it, you know, mindfully. But it, it was very frustrating to get. And toy planes I wrote out of a just sudden kind of like, you know, look, here's a manifesto, right? Like, right. this is why I'm doing this. You should be able to read this and, and kind of get why I think this is important. I want to see that Caribbean boy mm -hmm. in the future. I think uh, the Caribbean people need a voice at the table. And uh, and I wrote it and published it in Nature Magazine, which was fantastic. And and um, you know one of the greats in the in the field uh, 
asked for it to be in a year's best anthology. But even then, uh, this this uh, upstanding editor, this giant in the field, wrote an intro that re- made me realize he completely missed the point of the story. He wrote an intro that said, um, you know, this is a really amusing story about a bunch of Caribbean people trying to get to outer space. Oh, which was so patronizing, <laughs> you know, that it, it just sucked the breath out of me when I read it. You know, I was like, no, this is not an amusing story. This is a heartfelt kind of, you know, statement. Like people, right. when I when I read it in the Caribbean, sometimes people like, you know, missed up and 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 kind of cry a little bit because they do, they feel that kind of like, yes, we want a place at the table, too. Um, and it was so insulting that he that he wrote that that kind of intro. Uh, that it was like, oh, I guess, you know, this is this is the way a lot of people feel about what I'm doing. And 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 that was like, ah, that sucks. But that's exactly why I wrote this story. You know, the people who will get it will get it, you know, mm-hmm. and that's all I can do. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's really something. It's unfortunately not that surprising in some ways. But um, I, I had a, I had some other questions um, also about like climate based SF. Cause I know you've written yeah, some it. like cli-fi, I guess. Cli- I, I don't know how people I say I don't know. That. I mean, I know some people use that term, but I just, um, yeah, I don't feel comfortable with it. <laughs> okay, great. Like near, near future climate based science fiction. Sure. <laughs> um, but I, so I'm, you know, and part of this question comes from, you know, again, like I wonder if, you know, growing up in this rural area, is part of like where that comes from i know for me like it's part of the reason i care a lot about climate change is like you know especially a place like alaska like you see it you see literally ice melting and the climate changing and winters being rain instead of snow and this kind of thing and even the conservative people have a really hard time denying (laughs) climate change when you live up there my parents for instance but um you know, so I'm, I'm kind of wondering, uh, yeah, if you wanted to talk a little bit about that and, you know, maybe, you know, because the other thing I was thinking here, you know, when I when I say primitive, like one of the things that always like bugs me about that thought that like, oh, rural people are primitive. I mean, you're absolutely right. There's this whole like, you know, economic inequality thing that ties into that. But there's also just like, you know, OK, they might focus on different problems, but they still solve those problems, you know, mm-hmm. and I feel like they kind of like focus on the climate and the environment is like one of the places that people do focus and do, you know, make innovative changes. So, yeah, I mean, one of the one of the things about living in the Caribbean, one of the reasons I live in the States is because of climate change, which is that, mm-hmm. you know, the summer of uh, 95, we had three really bad hurricanes pass through the Virgin Islands. And mm-hmm. I'm, a, you know, I'm a I'm a climate change refugee. We lost our boat. We lost everything we had. And uh, my stepdad uh, happens to be from Akron, uh, so we moved. We moved to Akron because we didn't have a we didn't have a place to live in the Virgin Islands after the three hurricanes came. So I have this sort of intimate association with the beaches that will be destroyed by rising oceans. The you know, damage that will be done to islands if uh, hurricanes of this magnitude continue coming, which they're forecast to keep coming. Um, and this last hurricane, you know, I wrote Hurricane Fever in, I think, 2014. I think it came out in 2014. I wrote it in 2013. But uh, basically trying to imagine what a hurricane season like the last one we had uh, would look like right. if it happened, you know, 30 to 40 years in the future or 50 years in the future. Um, but it happened last, last summer. So it's, it's, uh, 
it's just me trying to wrap my head around the stuff that's coming around the corner, which I don't see people doing much of and wanted to try and kind of think about it. You know, some of it's some of it I thought was me being science fictional and exaggerating. And some of it is just uh, me reading off of um, the IPCC climate change uh, projection models and um, taking their most uh, radical interpretation and using that for a piece of science fiction. And what's interesting about that is as I was drafting and working on, on the novels, the most radical estimates, the worst case estimates, um, became the median estimates by the time I was done with the novel over a two-year period. So mm-hmm. that's terrifying, you know, to have gone through that two-year period of working on a novel and see the estimates keep getting revised and revised and revised, worse and worse as I was working on it was was just a, you know, um, a terrifying process. Um, and Task Force Climate Change, which was the U.S. Navy's uh, work that was being done, was also very useful. They have some very, uh, they have some thoughts about um you know, loss of, of power, of the ability of America to project power, of um, how destabilized the world will be as a result of massive, uh, you know, uh, uh, civilian population movement away from the most affected areas. And it's all it's all stuff that anyone can read if they want. And it's 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 you know, it's basically forecasting and you can use that to try and write a book out of and you end up getting <laughs> you know, something, something like what I've done, maybe, I don't know, (laughs) but it's just me trying to (laughs) grapple with all this stuff because I'm like, where's, you know, for there's this reaction when I try to grapple with it by a certain kind of reader, um, or even, I don't even know if they've read the books, but a certain kind of commenter, um, which is that like, you know, this is ridiculous. Um, but gosh, it goes back to this really fundamental tradition. Um, when I was reading books in the eighties, in science fiction growing up and I was really young, you know, that I was going to these used bookstores and people were handing around these books that were like 30 years old from the fifties and sixties. And one of the interesting things is the science fiction writers of the fifties and sixties wrote a crap ton of, of, of novels and short stories about nuclear war. Mm-hmm. It was on the horizon. They were obsessed about it and they wrote about it a lot. Right. And, mm-hmm. you know, some people wrote that they didn't think it was a big deal and we could get over it. Some people wrote that it's a big deal and it'll destroy all life. And we kind of had this airing of all these different possibilities and ideas through fiction. And I thought that was really healthy and fascinating. I'm sure it was a great, huge debate within the field. I, I wasn't alive at the time, you know, but whatever happened in the field and the way readers and writers and everyone interacted, I don't know what that looked like, but I know that there was I of thinking about it, of trying to grapple mm-hmm. with it. Um, and I think that in terms of ecological uh, futurism, that there hasn't been nearly the flowering of ecological futurism, that there was the uh, amount of nuclear disaster fiction that you see in the fifties. Um, I think a lot of people are scared to, put some stuff out there because they know the reaction is going to be immediately negative for trying to grapple with it because of the current sort of divisive atmosphere we live in. Um, but I, I thought it was worth doing. Um, and I thought it was worth grappling with because we need that, you know, uh, we need to have lots of different ideas and thoughts and, and attempts to grapple with it. Otherwise, you know, who controls that narrative, who starts to think about it? You know, uh, I think about a lot is the power of story. You know, and there was this movie called The Day After Tomorrow, 
which uh, yeah. was aired um, on all the different networks. And before that movie, the, the then president of the U.S., Ronald Reagan, had been of the opinion that a nuclear exchange was survivable and the U.S. would come out ahead. And he was very sort of generally not that worried about nuclear war. After he saw it, he was so shaken by it that he completely did a 180 and began to think about nuclear uh, limiting and working with uh, treaties with Russia and basically trying to move away from the whole idea that it was survivable. Um, it had it, and, and that's the power of fiction, right? Um, you know, you can you can shake things up that way. And so, in terms of ecological fiction, I think it's important to start, you know, to have more stories out there. Um, I think I think we're we're just scratching the surface, and we really need to have a proliferation of that stuff. Yeah, it you know that made me think of you know like right i think you're right that part of why people don't write as much about climate change fiction is that there is this sort of like kind of politicized nature and so there's like one particular audience for it it just got me thinking of like you know what what would the 50s and 60s have been like if half the country like you know denied nuclear weapons <laughs> like this idea of like oh we can't talk about it because because it's you know some of us don't believe it it's just very I don't know. I, I, yeah. that, that's sad. And I, I, I like that a lot that that's kind of where yeah. you come from. Yeah. I think, I mean, expanding, expanding the scope of what we are capable of imagining because you're providing tools for people to help them imagine more is exactly what the world needs. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think, um, I think that sort of leads into a question that Adrian, um, suggested, uh, that I just, uh, also really liked. I was interested in asking you about, um, you've, uh, you've done a little, you've, you've sort of produced books and writing in a lot of different ways. Mm-hmm. Um, you've worked through traditional publishers and you've run Kickstarter campaigns and you've written books, uh, in the Halo universe and you've edited anthologies in conjunction with governments and you have a Patreon. Um, there's a lot of this sort of interesting things going on in the economics of, your job right now of being a writer. Um, do you have, do you, would you mind sort of telling us a little about that, how you think about that and what you think, where you think it's going, what works? It's a, it's a, it's always a hustle. <laughs> <laughs> For real. You got to hustle. Um, being a freelancer is, is a, is a lifelong hustle. Uh, there was just a, 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 Neil Gaiman just retweeted and, and every, I think every writer on my Twitter feed just retweeted this little uh, thread about someone who is sitting there saying that, you know, when their neighbor goes by, they look at, you know, they look in the house and they see a writer sitting in there and they think, oh, what an amazing, you know, artistic, awesome life. And he's like, uh, and this this writer of this thread says every time, you know, they get together with another writer, it's, it's just them talking about all their different hustles and how they're doing. <laughs> mm-hmm. And uh, that definitely rung true to the entire writer sphere uh, because <laughs> everyone had some thoughts about that. And it's it's very true. Um, there's, there's a lot of different hustling because, you know, most of the books that you go in a bookstore and take a look at aren't written by full timers. They're, they're people who have, you know, either side hustles or a job and they produce writing on, on, on the side. You know, you think of Gene Wolfe, um, worked as an engineer all the way through his life. And, you know, um, I think this, this began when the internet and writers, uh, started really getting um, on it. The idea that 
your goal was to be a full-time writer and that somehow if, if you weren't a full-time writer, then that was kind of like a, a badge of failure. Um, and, you know, I was just going through a, a book called Writer's Habits recently that was a lot of fun. And one of the things that jumped out at me was uh, I'd forgotten just how many of even the famous writers that we read now in class and, and you know, when I was an English major in college and that you hear about were also individuals who had full-time jobs and or side hustles or, you know, had patrons that that took care of them. The idea that, you know, uh, writing was a sort of solid middle-class job that you could make a living off of year to year is a sort of a brief window during the, you know, late turn of the century. I think like, you know, the 1950s through the 1990s, there was a 40 year period where you you uh, had the ability to make a living, you know, for sure, if you got a novel published, not even for sure, but just, you know, there was that, that really good opportunity. Um, I came into the field at the collapse of that. I started publishing in the 2000s. And then the 1990s, uh, there was this uh, really famous uh court decision, I think, uh, called Thor Power Tools, which said that inventory that you had on the shelf uh, in a warehouse wasn't something you could deduct on your taxes, I think is how it worked. I, I may be getting that wrong, but something along those lines. And it changed the economics of basically printing forty to 50,000 copies of a book and just holding them in a warehouse until you could sell them all. Um, and so that's when the sort of like smaller runs came with the reprinting of them in order to go. And, and, and that's when um, publishing decided that, you know, like, hey, if we print, you know, five or 10,000 copies of a hardcover and the novelist only sells three to, you know, 4,000 of them, if we haven't found that audience within the first year, then we, we, we ditch them to put in something else, mm-hmm. you know. And so the, the lifespan of the book on the shelf narrowed. Um, the lifespan of the book uh, with the publisher proving itself narrowed. And it suddenly became this really fast game of throwing stuff against the wall to see if it sticks. If it's instantly successful, then you throw more resources after it. If it falls off the wall, then it wasn't meant to be. And if it slowly falls off the wall, what do we do? We're not really sure. Um, So the entire dynamic really changed right when I showed up. so for me, it's always been a hustle. Um, I've always been freelancing on the side. I've always been trying lots of different things. And so, uh, you know, my first uh, series where Crystal Rain Ragamuffin, Sly Mongoose, uh, the books did okay. You know, they, uh, you know, the, the Crystal Rain, you know, sold tens of thousands of copies. And so there's this like great audience for the Zen of Wealth. And, um, you know, follow-up books sold less and less, um, but basically started holding steady right around Sly Mongoose, mm-hmm. you know, between Ragamuffin and Sly Mongoose, they'd found kind of their, their natural, you know, one year run rate and, um, bookstores weren't carrying a ton of them, but the fans who really liked them out of the ones who'd all tried Crystal Rain were there. And so we kind of had this idea of like, Hey, we could sell this many books for this series on and on and on and on. Um, or we could try something like Arctic Rising and go go do something different. And Arctic Rising sold more than the you know Xenowulf books, but I still had all these Xenowulf fans asking me when the the next one was going to happen. Um, and I'd canceled it. Me and my editor had canceled it to try the the climate change books, but um, I figured you know I'd try a, a Kickstarter, you know, and and 
we we raised enough money to do a book via Kickstarter and and uh, you know published it myself on the side and it sells its you know handful of copies every month. So it 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 was just me experimenting with what was out there. Um, for Patreon, it was the idea of like, yeah, do I have enough of a fan base to let me write a short story every month for above market rates? You know that I could let me experiment. Certainly, one of the cool things about it is it's let me write stories artistically that I probably wouldn't have written to send to a uh, a normal you know publisher to see if you know and let's just play with this. Um, so uh, and then I also do some freelancing on the side. You know, so there's always there's always this sort of general you know ecosystem of different things bringing in different amounts of money that you kind of cobble together and see if you can lurch from year to year without starving um with <laughs> and some years you have really incredible years and some years you're you know you have very lean years and you just kind of uh, muddle through as best you can and i am willing to try just about anything and see if it works you know i'm i'm not too uh i'm not you know, I'm not too hung up on on what it looks like to be a writer as long as I keep to keep, you know, get to play as 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 long as they'll let me as long as they'll let me play, <laughs> I'll keep playing. And uh, who knows where it's going to change next? I, I have no idea. And one of the other things, though, is that whatever the dominant paradigm is, it doesn't necessarily mean your career will fit into that. You know, so right. for right now, yeah. self, you know. I don't think as much now, but for a while there, everyone was like, you know, oh, all you have to do is self-publish it, put it on Amazon, and you'll be an instant success, you know. And um, many people have gotten tremendous success from Amazon, uh, particularly if Amazon, you know, picks you up and notices you and promotes you. But other people without that have had some really cool success. Um, you know, I've I've done a bunch of experiments, both uh, as myself and under a pseudonym in that regard, and. Have just not seen the same uptick. You know, it's it's like you kind of you got to go where the skid takes you. And uh, for me, it's been like Kickstarter and uh, you know some traditional publishing, and you know just wherever more money keeps coming my direction, you just kind of go like, oh, okay, let's put a marker on that and follow that. <laughs> <laughs> totally. Yeah, people seem to like it when I do X Y Z. Let's do more of that. <laughs> yeah, it seems like you have a really um, positive attitude about it. Is that fair to say? I mean, I've heard a lot of writers, uh, maybe that's not fair to say. I've heard a lot of writers be certainly very down on it and maybe their, their expectations didn't line up with the reality for them or. Well, that's the trouble is your expectations, you know, um, it feels like, and and because it's, you know, because in, in most, and I don't even know if this is true, but in a lot of jobs, you know, if you put in 10 years of, of hard work and practice, you expect a certain amount of, you know, climbing the ladder mm-hmm. and and guaranteed success. You know, if you put in 10 years of, you know, uh, coding apps, you know, at the end of 10 years, you, you know, for a company, you expect that you kind of, you know, will be respected by some peers and have done some interesting work and have gotten some raises and, you know, maybe be a manager. Um it's always interesting to me to meet people that I've known for 15 years since I entered the, the job force and see them now, you know, as deans of, uh, you know, uh, departments and managers of this is and that's um, in the writing. It's, it's really it throws you for a loop because you can show up 
you can win some awards and be kind of the shiny new thing. You can you can sell some novels and then the interest goes away or to go. How did that happen? Mm-hmm. You know, um, how do you keep your hand? How do you keep the paddle in the water when the structure that you thought you'd plugged into, whether it's self-publishing or traditional publishing or whatever, when that tide suddenly goes away through no fault of your own, but just through the the ocean changing, like what does that what does that mean? Particularly if you tie it to your identity, which a lot of us do in writing. You know, you are the person who you know sold this many books and had a successful series that did this, and suddenly you can't get anyone to return your phone calls. You know, does that mean now I'm I'm somehow it it, it can kind of feel like you're suddenly you're lesser, you're not who you were. You know, because particularly in the U.S., we tie a lot of our identity to our jobs, you know, um, and so, you know, people get really depressed and go through some really tough times when they get fired. Um, and the same is and they can't get rehired, you know, even though it's a structural problem, not a personal problem. Right. There just aren't any jobs around for your particular field. They went away. The tide went out. But you still feel like I'm somehow a lesser husband, a lesser provider, a lesser whatever, because you can't get a new job. Um, the same thing happens in writing, but like on a constant yearly basis <laughs> or even a project by project basis, you know, every time you put something new together, you're putting yourself back out there to be judged by the ocean and, and you're, and you don't know where the tide is before you head out, you know? So for example, um, you know, when I launched the Patreon, I had some very successful Patreons around me, you know, who had been able to get, you know, uh, you know, comfortable living cobbled together by the Patreon. And I launched mine, you know, and I was really hopeful that I could get to about a thousand dollars. I'd had a freelance gig fall out from underneath me. And I was like, you know, if I could get like one thousand to fifteen hundred dollars cobbled together via Patreon, um, I I will have a great time balancing the books, you know, like I'm not going to live like a king, but like my grocery money is set. (laughs) (laughs) Right. And so I launched the Patreon because I I was like, I don't want to go hustling for more freelance work right now. I'd like to try to keep doing fiction. Um, And if I was going to have to go back and do more uh, freelancing, you know, a year and a half ago, I was, it was going to look ugly. So I'm like, let's do a Patreon. I'd saved up a ton of money. And I was like, you know, let's take a risk and do a Patreon. And if I can get like, you know, a thousand to $1,500, like I cannot have to replace the side hustle. I will be good to go. Um, and I, I raised 500, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? So I was like, that's that's kind of even the worst because it was like not clearly a go back to freelancing, you know, right. uh, little kid. Yeah. It was like, you're halfway there. You're halfway to what you need. Um, it drove me nuts, yeah. you know, for like three months. It drove me nuts. I was like, you know, what can I do to to get to a thousand? I'm like, I'm 50%. It feels like in any endeavor, if you can get 50% of the way, you should have a roadmap to getting the other 50%. Um, but the tide just didn't want to come. Like any anything I tried didn't work. Um, and, and so at some point, you, I just said, okay, just relax into it. You know, you're getting 500 a month. You're halfway there. Um, how long can you, how long can you, you know, make the, the savings last? You know, what, other, what else can you do to cobble something together? And how long can you just last to see if something else will happen? You know, and and that's just what I did. You know, and, and you know, a year and a half into it, and and you know, some things have come along. Some things might come along, um, and so. You, but but that uncertainty isn't easy to live with for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. So, you know, um, and and of course, you do feel judged. You know, like when I raised half of what I was hoping to raise, I felt like, am I half the author I thought I was? Um, you kind of you end up second guessing yourself a lot because you you have this 
this artificial goal. I mean, no one could have predicted what I would get or what I wouldn't get. You know, um, it's just that this is how many people there are out there interested in your short fiction, willing to pay a monthly fee for it, which is actually a really big ask. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm tremendously honored and, and grateful for it um, because now I can write a short story every single month that's weird and wacky that, that I get paid 500 bucks for. It's a great little guaranteed side hustle. Um, but, you know, there's this there's this thing where you can really get in your own head and it can feel and it did feel for a couple months really kind of like a blow to my self-confidence that I couldn't get what I had mentally set out to get. You know, I, I thought like, you know, OK, I'm a failure. And and it's even worse because it feels like you failed in public. Right. You know, right. there are all these people watching, you know, they could kind of sense you're going for one to fifteen hundred, you know, um, and you get and you fetched up against five hundred and you kind of think like, wow. So like everyone saw that on stage. <laughs> 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 um, but you kind of have to you kind of have to put your you know, you kind of have to take that pride and you know, put it aside and kind of go like, you know, look at what you have gotten. Um, you kind of have to literally go half as glasses, half full or glasses, half empty. You got to focus on the half full and, um, take that opportunity and, and run with it as best you can. Um, and that I think is the only mentally healthy way to go about it. Otherwise you just get really, um, down on yourself and that, that doesn't, that doesn't help you do the other stuff that you need to do to survive. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm curious. You've um you've said that like doing the Patreon allows you to write stuff that you might not otherwise be allowed to write. Have any of those stories yeah. then gone on and like you know been a lot bigger than you expected them to be? Like outside of the Patreon. Sure. Uh, Shoggoths and traffic is a short story I wrote right off the bat for the Patreon. <laughs> I love which that is just, story. <laughs> oh, thank you so much. I loved it so much. Um, <laughs> then it just, I'm, I'll, I'll say this. I'm getting better at letting loose my inner weird, but for so long, um, one of the puzzling things about being a writer is I never know what's going to stick with people. Um, I, because I was an English major, because I, I, I was around academia a lot when I started out, and because I was around, luckily around a lot of really great writers, um, it was kind of beaten into me that great writers work really hard at the piece of art that they're working on. And the harder you work on it, the better it is, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. That, that sounds logical, doesn't it? Mm, right, but it's definitely um, not true it, when you consider an it audience. Feels, <laughs> yeah, it feels logical to me. I mean, my sort of, uh, uh, you know, Western work ethic is the harder you work on something, the better it is. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I, yeah. I sometimes apply that to art. And I've written 70 short stories. And I've written them every single way you can imagine. I've worked really hard on a short story for months on end. The longest I've worked on a short story is three months, I think, three or four months. Okay, so I've, I've, I've put everything of my life and thought and soul into a short story for almost four months. And, and, and sold it and gotten crickets. <laughs> <laughs> I have put everything of mine into a short story for two months and sold it and gotten tremendous response back. I have dashed off a short story in a couple of hours and gotten crickets. And I've dashed off a short story in a couple of hours and gotten a wave of love mm-hmm. from the audience. Mm. 
I, out of all of that, all I can tell you is that I cannot predict in any way what's going to happen with a short story I write. Um, but I still have this sort of like puritanical work ethic thing in me that tells me like, if you dash something off the hours, you're a hack and it's not a good piece of art and it's really hard to get over. But Shoggoths in Traffic was basically a story that had been in my head in terms of just a question, which was like, why the hell does my GPS constantly, randomly reroute me in weird places for just little offshoots and then back onto the highway? Occasionally, it'll just take me off the highway and wander me around the back roads and then put me back on the highway. Or it once took me on a circle through a piece of farmland for no reason that I can tell. <laughs> and I've talked to some other people and they've all had experiences where the GPS flakes out on them. And for like a year, I've wanted to write this story where, uh, you know, we find out that the real reason the GPS does that is because it's tracing occult symbols uh, with your driving um, to unleash, you know, horrors from the other side. And I've wanted to do it for so long, but I'm like, it's really a dumb idea. It's a, it's a dumb story. It's the best you idea. Know, because it's just a joke. <laughs> it's just a complete rim shot, right? You know, in terms of how I felt about it, right? Right, right. Um, you know, I, I'm like, I just have this, I just have this but up bump that I have had in my head, you know, as an answer to this question about why my GPS reroutes me all the time. And I really would like to write it, but I don't know. No one's no one's been like, hey, we have an anthology of weird GPS stories that we want a story for. <laughs> um, or I don't, you know, like no one's had a, an open anthology that they've asked me for a story where I'm like, oh, I can use this idea. Um, and I've been like, I don't, I'm not going to write this and send it out to a big market because it's kind of like a, a single, it's just a, it's just a one note, da dump dump. Um, but when I did the Patreon, I was like, great, this is going to be my first, one of my first original stories for the Patreon. Um, I will sit there. I'll write this silly story out. It's going to be fun. Um, and hopefully everyone who reads it will have a good laugh. Um, and that's, that's all I was trying to do was just sort of like, go like, see guys, this is why your GPS does this. Um, and of course I had to come up with a good character and a good reason. And that's how stories become good. Not the, the idea, you, you know, it's the execution, um, and so I think I did an okay execution. Um, people really liked it on the Patreon. And then uh, Rich Horton took it for a year's best anthology, which I was shocked, you know. Um, and he also reviewed it for Locus Mag. So as far as I know, it's the first Patreon original reviewed at Locus, you know, just for its own sake. Um, and now it's just me goofing around. I just, I just, I wouldn't have written it otherwise. Um, and so that's why Patreon, I, I find Patreon kind of cool. It's just me kind of... Uh, you know, going like, I've always wanted to write this like one little weird dinky mm -hmm. idea. Uh, you know, let's see if we can turn this into a story. Um, and so it actually, uh, because I know that it's already paid for and that the patrons are, you know, I guess they read it. I hope they read it, <laughs> um, but they're paying for it. So that's what counts um, because they uh, are, are all signed up for the Patreon. I know that I can kind of take this artistic leap and do something, you know, weird and um, experimental. Um, you know, uh, what the last story I wrote that was also like that, um, was, uh, the story before last or this last month's story is called life considers a set of common online security questions. The whole idea of that story is, <laughs> so uh, I'm going through my, uh, security questions and I'm, I'm changing them because I am a public figure. And so people will ask you things like, you know, tell me about your first dog. 
I'm like, well, that's great, but I can't answer that because that's actually <laughs> an online security question. I can't tell you anything about my online dog because my bank, my first dog, my <laughs> bank, you know, has asked me what's the name of my first dog. <laughs> so, so what I started to do was I, I wrote this line where I, I said, you know, you know, my uh, my my uh, first dog's name is you know Zederta, you know, just random letters and uh my mother was you know again random letters you know uh killer of men's souls eater of men's souls um and we lived on one two three uh don't you wish you knew street um and so i just had that first line it's just a joke you know that's all i had but you know two months ago i was like ah you know what i need to write a story for patreon i've got two days to do it in let's just sit down and, and take this first line and see if i can turn it into a two thousand word short story um which i proceeded to do it's so experimental, though, because it's like it, the whole thing is just a set of jokes about security questions. <laughs> so I, I, I would never have submitted this to a regular magazine because it's 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 kind of I don't know. It's 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 weird. It's just it's it's, you know, but everyone who sees a lot of people who've seen it have had this kind of like really strong reaction <laughs> because everyone's had to do yeah. online security questions. And the point of the story is kind of like, maybe you should make up your own answers to your security questions. Right. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> I love that because that actually reminds me of like what I think of as old Internet when people were a little more experimental in what they wrote online and everyone was a little less self-conscious and everything was a little less insane mm -hmm. and on fire. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, the other thing that kind of uh, inspired me to do it was uh, Lucy Snyder. She's a writer down in Columbus had this great story on Strange Horizons called How to Install Linux on a Dead Badger. <laughs> which, <laughs> Such a good title. If you were also in the uh, you know early internet, it was oh, there was always an article like oh, yeah. how to install Linux on your microphone, yep. how to install oh, Linux on a God, can of soda. So you know? It was just so like when, when people were really you know, in that strong evangelical phase of Linux and they're trying to get you to install it on everything. There used to be like uh, at science fiction cons, there used to be like a there would there'd always be like a panel that's like, you know, come by with any machine that you have and we'll put Linux <laughs> yeah. on it, you know. <laughs> I mean, I definitely tried to install Linux on my like a uh, Wi-Fi router at some point in high school. So, <laughs> yeah, no, it's it. it She just captured that whole period. I'm going to go read, you know, that. and uh, yeah, it's a it's a great story. It's hilarious. Cool. So where where can people um, find your Patreon? Just search your name on Patreon. Yeah. Um, it's uh, patreon.com forward slash Tobias Buckel. Cool. That should get you there. Cool. And uh, if you go to my Twitter, you know, twitter.com forward slash Tobias Buckel, there's a link in the in the header there to it as well. Yeah, we'll, we'll definitely have links to all this stuff as well in the show notes. Yep. Cool, yeah, and I definitely want, you know, I think, I think the stories that you publish there are, I mean, I personally really like fun, experimental, like different stories. So I really enjoyed the ones that I've read. So I think that um, oh, folks you. should folks should definitely check that out if they've liked anything that we've talked about. Um, so one thing that I've tried to find more information about, but like haven't been able to, is you published a um, 
an anthology of science fiction, fantasy and horror in Bermuda of like Caribbean science fiction authors. And I'd love if you just like talk a little bit about that, um, whether it's going to be available to American audiences at any point. Um, you know, I think I think particularly because and like part of why I come to this is, you know, we were talking earlier about how like Caribbeans will get your fiction in a way that an American audience might not. But I, you know, thinking about like it's just that much more important than to like publish more Caribbean authors and publish more Caribbean, like, you know, uh, not just like fiction authors, but also like reviewers and stuff like that. So I'm wondering Mm -hmm. kind of like where that's at, if that's ever coming, if that was ever the plan, or if it really is actually something just for those people in that place instead. So a few years ago, the government of Bermuda, um, Dr. Kim uh, Desmont Robinson, uh, who's the director of uh, the Department of Cultural Affairs, uh, reached out to me, Department of Culture, reached out to me and asked if I'd be interested in coming to Bermuda for three weeks to teach a workshop on science fiction and, and fantasy and, and uh, uh, work with some of the students, uh, people interested in writing it on the island, because she'd been talking to a lot of the writers there and kind of had gotten the impression that there are more science fiction writers on the island than she realized, and that this would be a really good thing. Uh, the Department of Culture has been investing in bringing in um, writers and artists um, to the island to do workshops um, to help the talent on the island um, get better um, and uh, catapult Bermuda, you know, to the next level. Mm-hmm. Um, which is a cool thing that uh, you know some European and, and non-American places do (laughs) invest in their artistic talent. And uh, so she, you know, looked up, you know, Caribbean science fiction writers and, and uh, was like, Oh my gosh, I've got, there's a, there's a plethora of people I could invite to come do this and uh, ended up inviting uh, me, which uh, I was really honored by. So I went there and I taught for three weeks. Um, Well, actually two and a half weeks, we were interrupted by a hurricane. So it was a, it was a essentially Caribbean experience. And, Um, worked with uh, some really great, great students. And one of the things that she asked me, you know, after we were done with the workshop was, you know, do we have enough talent to put together an anthology? And I said, I thought we did. So we, uh, you know, I think uh, a year or two years ago opened up, you know, uh, a call for submissions. And I went through and was the editor, which uh, to all my editor friends out there was a lot more work than I had anticipated, <laughs> um, but was really was really interesting and really cool. Um, one of the things we uh, did with the anthology was the government of Bermuda printed it out and made it a book. Um, and so we also um, took uh, art from the National Gallery uh, that was on display and had been displayed over the last two years. And we used that um, in between all the stories and put together this very beautiful, uh, beautifully printed um, anthology. And the idea is that it's going to go into all the schools and the libraries and also be around for purchase on the island. But uh, there were a lot of really cool stories that came out of that anthology. And um, one writer, uh, two writers in it, went on to... Um, sell stories to uh, New World's Old Ways, um, which was edited by Karen Lord from Barbados, mm. um, out from, I think it was out from People Tree Press. I have my copy somewhere around here. Um, and, uh, I, you know, some of the writers there are continuing to do some really great things. Um, one of the other writers who was in the class just won the uh, 
uh, an award uh, at Bocas Lit Fest or uh, was nominated for an award at Bocas Lit Fest. So it's uh, it's uh, it was a good thing. It was a good thing. It's not for sale in the U.S. because um, borders, man, um, and not borders the bookstore. Borders <laughs> make it hard for uh, sales across uh, different places. So the government of Bermuda printed it, but the question is, how do you sell it outside the island? effectively um who will stock it in the u.s um how will they how do they even get to know about it um you know i i i i i kind of dropped some emails right when it first came out but uh um, i ended up getting sucked into a really big project that i had to do and and so um i sent some resources to the government um i don't know what they'll I don't know what what will ever happen to the anthology, but it does exist. It exists in Bermuda. If you're ever in Bermuda and go to a bookstore in Bermuda, you can find it. If you go to a library in Bermuda, you can find it. It'll be available in the schools because the idea is, um, you know, as much as they put it together, um, the idea was more to uh, stimulate and promote more of that kind of writing inside of the island and show people that it is um, something that is done within the island. So if younger writers, you know, are in the, in college or see it in a bookstore or see it around, they know here's, here's the book of, of, uh, Bermuda science fiction that we did. Um, and that that's something we do here in Bermuda. So, you know, hopefully it inspires another generation or more writers to, to write their stories. That's awesome. That's wonderful. Yeah. I love, I love hearing that. And it's, you know, I love that it's like there for the people who it was actually made for. And then also like if, you know, if we want a copy, it's like you have to go on a quest. (laughs) (laughs) Not not everything at our fingertips all the time. Yeah. Yeah. There's some awesome stories. There's some awesome stories in it. I was very proud of it. So it is. Yeah. But it is this artifact that if you're if you're a completist, if you want to collect everything that Tobias Buckell has ever done, (laughs) you've definitely got to go on a heck of a side quest <laughs> that is wonderful i love it that's what i mean those side quests are often the most fun ones <laughs> <laughs> so um maybe uh kind of nearing the end ish I, I i i don't if we have time i i would love to ask you about um you know we kind of started to talk about this a few times you've definitely mentioned a bunch of names but if you if you've got some uh, other caribbean writers and other caribbean sf writers who you would like to tell us about i mean i act i you know we we may already know about them i i'm a big karen lord fan for example but like she's amazing i, yeah. I would love to i would love to hear you talk about other caribbean sf maybe and and tell us tell us about it so karen lord is a bayesian writer barbate you know she's based out of barbados and she's written um uh, the best of all possible worlds galaxy games which are, would fit in the idea of caribbean science fiction they are uh you know, the other, other worlds, other peoples, it's, uh, really great stuff. And of course, uh, she did a, um, uh, redemption in Indigo, which is a, uh, retelling of, a, a African, uh, folktale. Um, but, uh, again, is actually, if you read it very carefully, you'll realize it's Caribbean science fiction. Um, and it is amazing. It's an amazing book. Um, and that is out from small bear press and, uh, Karen um, uh, edited also uh, New World's Old Ways, which is a short story uh, anthology, which collects um, the next generation of Caribbean short uh, science fiction and fantasy authors. And 
all of the authors in that are worth keeping an eye on because there's a lot of good work in that. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of the themes that we were talking about that I'm interested in are definitely evident in, in those stories. Um, the writers from New World's Old Ways are where you can go to discover kind of, you know, what's what's happening next. Um, and uh, one of the uh, writers that leaps out of that is uh, out of Trinidad is uh, Brandon O'Brien. Uh, he's on Twitter, um, a very interesting thinker on Twitter. And he's been selling short stories uh, all around. After that, out of Trinidad, again, is Rhonda Garcia. Um, she's uh, written a book, uh, the title of which is escaping me right now. I think it's oh, Lex Talionis is the name of it. Um, there's, of course, Nella Hopkinson, who is kind of like the mother to us all. Uh, she is a multiple award winning and amazing uh, author who's been uh, working since, um, I think, 98, 99 was when she first started breaking in and is fantastic, fantastic writer. Um, and we also have uh, um, uh, Stephanie Salter, um, her book's uh, Gem Signs. She's a Jamaican-British uh, author, is uh, fantastic, and she's doing some cool stuff. There is, uh, I don't know how to pronounce this, but I just read The Black God's Drums by P. DeGelia Clark, I think. Um, I got an advanced reader copy of that. That was a fantastic short book. Um, Definitely worth reading. It is what I would call sort of like um, alternative history, steampunk, uh, Caribbean uh, airship. Novel. So into it. <laughs> you just hit oh, every one of Matt's it's like spines uh, there. <laughs> it's so good. It's so good. Um, I had a blast reading it. I hope everyone buys it when it comes out. I think it's later this summer. It's a fantastic read. Um, I really enjoyed it. Um, the uh, An Unkindness of Ghosts by River Solomon, I think, was one of the best books of last year. Amazing, amazing book. Um, I basically begged everyone to read it. I've given away so many copies of it. Um, I've just been sort of evangelical about that book. It's just a a fantastic and amazing read. It is one of the best generation Starship books I've ever read. And it is uh, pretty amazing. And I think I I found out about Rivers because someone said that they had a Caribbean connection. Um, They were you know, either first or second generation immigrant or had family or some sort of strong connection. Uh, if you also like the idea of airships in the Caribbean, um, again, <laughs> so um, much. <laughs> uh, Maurice Broadus uh, is writing some stuff. He's his last uh, couple pieces. Um, and he his whole, his family is is Jamaican. Uh, for a long time, Maurice was my my connection to uh, getting ting. It's a, it's a grapefruit soda from the Caribbean. <laughs> and uh, every oh, time I ran into cool. Maurice at a convention or something, he'd run back up to his room and come back with a little six pack of ting bottles <laughs> for oh, me man. because his, you know, one of his family would that's have gotten, come back and, and delivered some for him. And he knew that that I, that that's my, that's my one taste of home. That's hard to get up here in Ohio. Um, ting. Uh, it sounds horrible. I mean, it, it, most people have had Fresca and have have justifiably noped out of the grapefruit soda experience, but Ting is not Fresca. It is its own thing. If if, if Ting was Fresca, I could drink Fresca up here and I'd be okay. But Ting is its own thing, man, and I love it. Um, and uh, yeah, Maurice Maurice was my connection. Um, what else do we have going on? If you go to um, www.caribbeansf.com, 
Um, it is a basic site that I've set up with a basic bibliography. It's now two years out of date, but that has a great reading list of Caribbean influenced uh, science fiction and fantasy. That's so cool. I didn't know you were behind that site. I, I went yes, there when I was Googling yeah. around about this. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that's so cool that you're behind that. That's awesome. Yeah. I set that up um, a few years ago just out of a desire to kind of try and start keeping track of all the Caribbean SF for conversations like this. Yeah. You know, pretty because... good SEO, honestly. It came up oh, pretty thank near you. the top. Yeah. <laughs> it used to be it used to be that I'd say like, oh, well, you know, you'll, you'll want to read Karen Lord and Nell Hopkinson. And when I first was getting, you know, into this, that that's pretty much, you know, what what the recommendation would be. But over the last four years, there's been an explosion of uh, of stuff. And to be honest, I have not read every little piece of Caribbean science fiction that's out there yet. Um, and yeah, that's a great spot be to be in. Yeah, yeah, that's a great spot to be in. That's what I want to see because you know, for years and years and years, I'd I'd read every single piece. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, that's awesome. That's that must so, be really gratifying. Yeah, that's great it's to so hear. gratifying. It's so gratifying, you know. And I'm, I'm I can't wait. I can't wait to be the forgotten old guy who, <laughs> you know, had one of the first pieces and uh, is completely irrelevant to the idea of Caribbean science fiction. It's going to be awesome. <laughs> I say that genuinely, not as right. a joke, but you know, um, that's I can't wait. Well, here's here's to that. Here, uh, yeah, absolutely. I'll to that. <laughs> Um, cool. So I think I think that's it from us. Unless Matt, you had any more questions? Did we miss? Anything I could on I the could ask sheet? you a lot more questions, but we might <laughs> we might want to call it. Right. Um, I have to call it because I'm in a diabetes okay. stroke in my uh, my home office here. <laughs> <laughs> it's like a hundred degrees in New York City yeah. today. So all right. I think probably everywhere we had to turn off the ACs for the recording. So <laughs> <laughs> you guys are all slowly melting in front of me. <laughs> yep. Yeah. <laughs> Great. Well, um, yeah. Thank you again so much for doing this. Um, Seriously, sure. thank you. Thank yeah, you so much. It's help. such a such a pleasure to to talk oh. about this stuff and to learn about it from you. Yeah. Awesome. And again, our our audience, our folks should go check out your Patreon at patreon.com slash Tobias Buckel. Um, anything else that like, you want to plug any like recent novels or anything like that? Uh, the most recent novel is uh, The Tangled Lands, which Paolo Bacigalupi and I kind of co-wrote. It's uh, kind of comprised of four shorter pieces all interlinked together. And that's out from Saga Press. Uh, got a gorgeous cover. If you find that, that is, uh, that's the latest uh, sort of high fantasy uh, project that we did. Nice. And um, at some point in my novel, The Trove for General Sale, that was a kickstarted uh, kind of uh, right. young adult slash middle grade kind of straddles uh, the two that I did based on Treasure Island, kind of re rewriting and revisiting that for a set of cyberpunk space opera setting that uh, was a oh. fun project. So I keep love an eye I out for that. I can't wait to read, <laughs> read these. Love it. Great. Well, again, thank you so much. All right. Oh, man. So fun. They're, All right. Thank you so much. There legit are a lot of other questions I would ask you. We'll save it for another time. <laughs> All right. Another time. Another time. Yeah. Cool. Sounds great. Thanks again. I appreciate it. Yep. Right. Well, that was our interview with Tobias S. Buckel on Caribbean science fiction and a lot of other topics. Um, a big thanks to him again, of course, for coming on and doing this. It was thank really, you. Yeah, an amazing experience. And he's so really 
Uh, I, don't, I mean, hopefully it's super interesting to me. I have like 30 books I need to read now. So. I know. I, I love he was he's such a smart guy and such a smart thinker on all the stuff that we're interested in. So. <laughs> I know. I know. I it really was really great. To talk to him more. Um, cool. And so, um, yeah, as always, thanks to uh, WJ for the outro and intro music, the, the outro music you're hearing right now. You can find him on SoundCloud by searching WJ. Uh, thanks to Noah Bradley for our website cover art. Um, you can find his prints and whatnot at noahbradley.com. Thanks to everyone for listening. Definitely go check out Tobias's Patreon. He publishes cool stories there. I think there's one or two that are free for I forgot to ask him. I think there's one or two that are kind of like free to read. You can also, you know, if you Google his name, you can find um I know one of the stories that we talked about was um Toy Plane, and that's available for free online through the Nature's website, as is um Zen and the Art of Starship. Spaceship. Starship. That's it. Starship maintenance. Set in the art of starship maintenance. Um, so yeah, that's it from us today. Um, we will... Oh, should we do the like announce the next book? We can say it now and you can choose to edit it out. Alright, sounds good. Um, so our next book is going to be The New and Improved Romy Futch by Julia Elliott. Uh, Julia is a gender studies professor who lives in, oh, I want to say South Carolina, but I could be wrong about that. I'll, I'll check. And in the, in the pre-read, we'll have more about her and what she, who she is and what she does. But, uh, the new and improved Romy Futch is a really cool novel. It's like both a really like weird gonzo, like fun novel, like Matt, I think you're going to, so I've read it before yeah. and Matt has not, That's this right. is a little bit of like my recommendation for him. I'm excited. Uh, it's weird. It gets super weird, and I like really don't want to tell you in what ways it gets weird, so you can enjoy them as they come. Um, I, I will give you one hint, and that hint is taxidermy. Okay, great. <laughs> um, but it's also a novel about like like social constructions of intelligence, the way that intelligence, um, education, and class all interact with each other. It's set in like the the South in a really kind of like you know particular like Southern rural setting that I think it's kind of it reminds me of like different aspects of like growing up in rural Alaska. I think that I think that there's a lot to talk about there and. Um, it's also fun. It's just one of the most like ridiculous fun novels I've read in a long time. So I think that that it'll be a really like fun one for us to talk about. Um, I'm really looking forward to it. It's really fun for me to jump into something that I don't know anything about. Yep. <laughs> Great. Um, all right. So we will talk to everyone next week um, as we talk about the new and improved Romy Futch. Bye, Matt. Peace out. Bye.